In this week's episode, we bring you a trigger warning for discussions of sexual assault, harassment, gun violence, and murder. Please listen with care. Okay, warriors, you are listening to Unqualified Therapists. Remember, stay wild and weird. Hey, warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah. We started this podcast because mental health is complicated and the stigma surrounding it can make us feel alone. So we are here to share authentic stories in order to normalize and prioritize mental health. We believe in professional therapy. We both use it on our own healing journeys, but we also know it isn't one size fits all. So we are here to provide tools from our own experiences, as well as those from our guests and professionals that come on the show. Thank you for being here as we navigate the complexities of mental health and mental illness together. Remember, hold on, warriors. We're going to make it. to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. We are back this week, and not that last week wasn't heavy, but this one's a little bit more so, and we kind of had it in the works even before this news story came up that we're going to talk about, but one of the things that I think is the worst feeling in the world is when you are not believed, and you know for sure either something happened or something was done to you, they don't believe you. And so we're going to talk about that today. Like, what is that about? And why? (laughs) Like, what? why? This all kind of came about because I've kind of alluded to it on a different episode that my son has been having some issues at school. And that has been with bullying. There have been multiple kids that have been giving him a hard time. And when I say hard time, that's like being so nice about it. It is abusive. It is harassment. It is horrible. My heart is like breaking for him. So we've been doing a lot of stuff (laughs) around that and dealing with it and, and talking with administration and with the school. And then there were some threats made from one in particular. And so immediately I was like, this has to be taken care of. With the way that our schools are now and how mass shootings are the number one cause of death for school-aged kids. Oh, that's fucking terrifying. Then somebody needs to pay attention when there is a a gun threat made. So we started talking about why don't people believe people, especially when the circumstances are something like this. We are becoming numb to it. I used to get upset. I used to be so distraught maybe tears even. Now I swear to you, I hear it and I'm like, okay, doesn't even phase me anymore. That's really fucked up. It gives me a pit in my stomach. I get sick every time I hear it. Oh, I I hate it. But here's the thing. I say every time I hear it, we don't even hear about half of these. It's, It's spurred this conversation with me and Amy. Why don't people believe others when there is a real threat right in front of their faces? 
And I feel like we've probably both been in situations ourselves where that's happened, where people just did not believe us. You know, when I think about it, and I'm just, this is not any research, this is me just coming off the top of my head, is it, it's too much trouble to look into? Is it, I don't want to get in trouble for looking into something that's not real? Is it, I'm just too lazy? Is it, that can't possibly be true? Yes, you have nailed some of them. So I did do some research and find out <laughs> <There we go>. <laughs> <laughs> why the hell we don't pay attention when there are imminent threats literally staring us in the face. The case with Abby's Werner, she is a teacher in Virginia. I am sure that you have heard the story. She was shot by one of her students who was six years old. That is a sad story right there. And disturbing and upsetting. There's more to the story. You may think, oh my gosh, this can't possibly happen. I spent half of my life in different school districts. I promise you, this is not uncommon. Besides Abby, there were three other teachers that went to admin that day to um, display, to share concern. So that's kind of what you're supposed to do. If you see something, say something. Anywhere in life, and especially as an adult who is in charge of the safety of children, you want to always make sure that you go to your admin, you always say something. And, you know, three teachers did it, including herself, and it was brushed off every time. Finally, they did check the book bag. The admin said, when she said, I bet it could be in his pants pocket. Well, he's a first grader. His pants pockets are too small. Come on. I don't, I don't understand how that can be an excuse for people telling you that there is, it should be on one, right? It should be on the first person. But four people telling you that there's a situation, there is a mass exodus right now of teachers in the United States. And I bet this case will just add on to that. And I don't blame a single one of them. And I just decided one day after one of the shootings, I don't know which one it was. I love my job enough and my students enough that every day when I go to work, I know I might not come home. I don't trust the system for this reason right here. You should believe anyone, but you should definitely believe your trained adult staff when they're coming to you. It's not like two kids tattling on each other. Right. Which, again, you should still investigate. We're going to go right to the facts and hear from Abby's attorney. Abby and these other teachers at Rich Neck Elementary School tried to do the right thing on January 6th, the day of the shooting. On that day, over the course of a few hours, three different times, three times, school administration was warned by concerned teachers and employees that the boy had a gun on him at the school and was threatening people. But the administration could not be bothered. This tragedy was entirely preventable if the school administrators responsible for school safety had done their part and taken action when they had knowledge of imminent danger. But instead, they failed to act and Abby was shot. When the first incident of the day happened, at around 11.15 to 11.30 a.m., Abby went to a school administrator, as was protocol, to tell them that the six-year-old had threatened to beat up another child that same day. But the school administration could not be bothered. They didn't call security, they didn't remove the student from the classroom, the school administration failed to act. Later on, around 12.30 p.m., when another teacher 
went to a school administrator, as was protocol, and told the administrator that she, the teacher, took it upon herself to search the book bag of the boy that was suspected to have brought the gun to school. The teacher then tells that same administrator that she believes the boy put the gun in his pocket before going outside for recess. But the administration could not be bothered. The administrator downplayed the report from the teacher and the possibility of a gun, saying, and I quote, well, he has little pockets. This is outrageous. Given the opportunity to call the police over a report of a potentially armed student, the school administrator failed to act and protect the school. Shortly after 1 p.m., when a third teacher tells administrators of another boy who is crying and fearful, that he bravely confesses to his teacher that the perpetrator showed him the gun at recess and threatened to shoot him if he told anybody. What did administrators do? Did administrators call the police? No. Did administrators lock down the school? No. Did the administrators evacuate the building? No. Did they confront the student? No. When a fourth employee who heard about the danger asked the administrator for permission to search the boy, he was denied. He was told to wait the situation out because the school day was almost over. Let that sink in. Tragically, almost an hour later, violence struck Richnack Elementary School. Abby Zorner was shot in front of those horrified kids and the school and community are living the nightmare. All because the school administration failed to act. Were they not so paralyzed by apathy, they could have prevented this tragedy. Paralyzed by apathy. Mic drop. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to put it. When she used the word downplay, it was the perfect word. And all I could think about was the situation that Sarah is in currently with her son. That is the response consistently that you get. They keep downplaying the situation that is serious. Is that a mechanism? I don't know. Is that what you're taught to do? I have no idea. I call that paralyzed by apathy. <laughs> it's been the most frustrating experience. And I have to say that I'm not going to sit here and pretend like as soon as my son told me about some of the things that this child had said to him, that my first thoughts weren't, yeah, but he's a child. Do you really think he's going to follow through and do the things that he's saying he's going to do? Absolutely. That is the first thoughts that we have. And we always want to think like, okay, let's see what our kid had to do with this. Like, what part would they play? Are they telling me the full story? Mm -hmm. You went that whole route. Exactly. I did. As, you, as I feel like most parents do. Mm -hmm. Because we want to be objective. Right. Then it escalated. And the police had to be involved. And the police confirmed some of my fears that some of the things that were being said and threatened might actually happen. I have told Sarah so many times how proud I am of her because it is one of the hardest things to stand, especially in, I'm going to put it in quotes, authority. Mm -hmm. Stand in front of authority figures and tell them this very difficult thing and you have no idea the reaction they're going to give and a lot of times it's that like looking at you like you're crazy right 
Yeah. The possibility of that was real. Some did to her. Some did not. There were a couple people who did listen. I agree. And hear you. Mm -hmm. But there were just as many who didn't and were so condescending to you. Yes, absolutely. And that's a good word for what happens when you speak up about things like this. But you did it. It's out there. There Mm -hmm. is the paper trail. There is the report. All of these things. You did what you had to do in the face of knowing there is a freaking good chance you won't be believed. Yeah. And I, I have experienced that before from authority. I don't know what it is about me <laughs> that I'm kind of have this like, I don't give a fuck. Like I'm still going to, I'm still going to push forward and it's gotten me in trouble in the past. And I've done it at times when I shouldn't have. And I probably have pushed for things that I should have just let go. And those were in my 20s. I think back Absolutely. on like. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. We all have done that in our 20s. Yes. <laughs> on like work learn. situations. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I should I just shut my mouth? Like, that wasn't worth it. <laughs> exactly. But my initial conversation that involved having a lot of condescension back to me, I was shaking from the inside out. And it was, <laughs> it was out of anger, but it was out of fear. Oh, God, here we go. And I was saying things that. I, in my 20s, would have just been like, blurted out and been like, yeah, take that, fuckers. <laughs> but for some reason, like, as, a, a, you know, in my 40s, I'm like, oh, I'm trying to be respectful here. I don't want to, you know, come across, this is my child, like, there's a child involved that is my child, and I don't want there to be any negativity placed upon him in, like, retaliation. So, you know, just trying to navigate those waters. But Amy has taught me, and I know this is like a famous saying, but it's something that she has really repeated to me often enough that it's really stood out to me. And all I could hear was your voice in my head when I was on the phone with him saying, speak up even if your voice shakes. And my voice was shaking. And I was like, nope, I'm going to fucking say this because it needs to be said. Yes. So thank you. Absolutely. (laughs) And to quote Jersey Shore, at the end of the day, (laughs) they fucking love that phrase. At the end of the day, you did what had to be done. So the outcome and the onus is on them. And you have protected your child and your child knows how fiercely you love him. That's what matters most. That is actually the biggest positive that has come out of this is the bonding that we've actually had over this. We just don't know which time is going to be the time when you get shot but by exactly. your student. You know yep. what I mean? We don't right. know. Therefore, you have to speak up and it will get you in trouble. It just is. There's no other ifs, ands, or buts. It's just going to. Stand tall and do it and say it and know that you did the right thing. You can go to bed at night knowing like... I did what had to be done. I told the truth. I mean, when you speak truth, like what else, what could be against you? Exactly. Exactly. And that's in the end, right? Mm-hmm. Right now it's, <laughs> it's muddy. It's murky. Yeah. It's but in the end, uncomfortable. No. And that was one thing, like, even with my shit, when I stood up, it's like, I never lied. I always tell the truth. Yeah. I always stand in that. Therefore, you can't catch me in anything. Exactly. You know, I'm in the world now, a different work world where there's a lot of 20 somethings. One of them I was just talking to and I was telling them about the podcast and they were like, well, who's the coolest person you had on? I was like, oh, oh, let me tell you, (laughs) Josh Mankiewicz. And they were like, huh? Oh, what? And I was like, from Dateline. And they were like, what? (sighs) What's that? What's Dateline? Guys, 
I don't even understand a world that people don't know who Josh Mankiewicz is. Or what Dateline is. How do you know what know what Dateline is? At least if you don't know the reporter's name. TV names. doesn't exist anymore. Right, exactly. I forgot about that. TV truly doesn't exist. We're in a whole new world. So when I saw this Dateline, because I watch all of them, duh. And especially Mank, because, you know, <clears throat> we're total besties. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't even use, like, our bestie name for him. Like, I was like, <laughs> yeah, Mank. You know. Bank. Wrong demographic, I guess. Yeah. Episode called Wreckage, if you want to watch it. That is part of the research that I did, but I also will put all of the research in the show notes. But we wanted to talk about another instance of where something was found to be unbelievable and the results of not believing were catastrophic and wrecked multiple families. And that is the story of Reggie Kimbrough. We're going to start with Melissa Winton. She was a senior in high school in 2012, working at a local surf shop where she met Reggie Kimbrough. They hit it off, exchanged numbers, and later that night he texted her and invited her to come over to his house. So later that evening, she headed over. He made an odd request telling her she needed to come through his bedroom window so she wouldn't wake his parents. Ew, and red flag. So they were hanging out when he made a move. She said no, and she stopped him. He then said... Okay, then can I get oral sex for 200 What? <laughs> like rewound it? And I yeah. was like, oh yeah, he asked for that. Oh yeah, oh um, yeah. The there's audacity. There's probably fucking dudes out there that do that. Yeah. Ladies or gentlemen, if someone says that to you, say, hails to the no and bye, jump back out the window. Which is what she did. She left immediately after that very awkward exchange and headed to her car as quickly as she could. But suddenly he came from behind and he began to strangle her. He quickly had her in the grass next to her car where he raped her on the ground. He held his hand over her mouth and nose, and she told Josh Mankiewicz on Dateline that she thought she was dying. When he released her, he then forced her into the car and drove her around for hours before inexplicably just taking her home. She told her parents immediately what had happened, and they took her to the hospital and then to the police to report the assault. What happened next is disgusting and inexcusable. So I'm going to read you the conversation between the detective and it's from a transcription of the interview tapes. After Melissa Winton recounted the events, this is Detective John Hoffman's responses. Do you think he knew he was hurting you or that you wanted to be choked? Because there are people that they like that. I don't know. To an 18 year old. Yes. Okay. Just clarifying. To to a senior in high school. That is what he said. Yeah. Once Melissa confirmed Again, that this was, in fact, non-consensual, police brought Reggie in for questioning. Reggie calmly told Detective Hoffman that the sex was consensual. He said, Melissa was just angry that she couldn't stay the night at his house, and now she's retaliating. So Detective Hoffman sits down with Melissa again after his conversation with Reggie, and here's the transcript from that. Detective Hoffman. I have to ask you, is what you said to me about the report and the everything you said true? Melissa. Yes, like, this is stupid, like, nobody's believing me. Detective Hoffman. It's not that I'm not believing you, I'm just seeing things that don't make sense. Melissa. I don't even want to do this anymore because, like, honestly, like, I mean, I know what happened. Y'all probably don't. I don't want to talk to anybody about this anymore. Like, I just want it to be over with. Nobody's believing me, and I'm starting to realize, like, I, I can't trust anybody. Like, it's just hard. Detective Hoffman, are you wanting this case presented to the grand jury? Melissa, no. 
Detective Hoffman. Are you wanting this investigation to stop? Melissa. Yes. Detective Hoffman then spoke with Melissa's father in a conversation that can only be described as wildly disrespectful. From the transcript, Detective. If I'm sitting on a jury, here's what the appearance is going to be. She lied to you. She snuck into a guy's window. Things didn't happen the way she wanted them to. She had sex with a guy she met earlier in the day, and he was a horse's ass to her afterwards. She's vindictive, and she made the whole thing up, because none of the evidence goes there. There it is. There is what every human fears. You tell one of the worst moments of your life, and that's what you get. And we wonder why sexual assault is so underreported. According to RAIN, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, out of a 1,000 sexual assaults that are reported... 975 perpetrators will walk free. It makes me sick. That's an astounding number. And it says that only 310 out of every 1,000 sexual assaults are reported. So that means that like more than two out of three go unreported. Right. Obviously. I mean, we don't need to know why. What you just read is exactly why. You know, I just found a New York Times article that was called Nobody Believe Me, How Rape Cases Get Dropped. And basically, they were just talking about how prosecutors, specifically in New York City, drop or reject 49% of the sexual assault cases. And that was in 2019. So it's not even like it was a long time ago. Sometimes I feel like we move forward with things. And then most of the time, then we see stories like this. And I realize we most certainly have not. So that's after me, too. So we're, so we're past that. So we know what's happening here, folks. Like, as if you didn't know, you know for sure. Mm-hmm. And we still have 49% of sexual assault cases that prosecutors reject, just won't do. Exactly what this guy is saying. He's saying it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. So two years later, in March of 2014, a young woman named Katie Coates was on spring break in South Padre Island, Texas, where she met and started talking to Reggie after having some drinks. After partying for the night, he offered to walk her back to her hotel. And once they arrived, she said she had to go to the bathroom. So she entered the public restroom in the hallway As she was closing the stall door, she said she saw Reggie coming at her, where he forced himself into the stall with her. It was here he sexually assaulted her while choking her. On the security cameras, she can be seen running from the bathroom, where she finds a hotel employee to walk her back to her room. As she rejoins her friends, shaken and scared, her friends see the bruising on her neck and take her directly to the police. She reports the rape, and Reggie is arrested. It's during his interrogation that he sings his usual tune that it was consensual sex. In this police department, however, they believed Katie and moved forward to take the case to the district attorney. But this is where it goes to hell once more, and the DA did not find Katie credible and refused to move forward with prosecution. And once again, Reggie was released. Years later, he met 22-year-old Molly Matheson on Tinder. They went on a few dates, but it fizzled out and they decided to just be friends. They hung out from time to time and texted, even though, as police would later discover, his number was not saved as a contact in her phone. On April 9th, 2017, Molly texted Reggie to come over to hang out. Only Reggie knows exactly what happened later that evening, but here are the facts. When Molly didn't show up for work the next day on Monday, her mother went to her home where she found Molly crumpled on the floor of the shower, dead. She had been strangled, raped, And according to her talk screen, she had the date rape drug GHB in her system. He made sure she did not stand a chance. 
It didn't take cops long to draw a line to Reggie. He was so arrogant since he'd been let go so many times prior that he didn't make it hard to arrive at him as a suspect. As police investigated, they found the texts from Molly to Reggie with the invitation to come over to hang out on the night she was murdered. They were then able to pull security camera footage from several homes in the area that showed his car coming and going from her home. On Friday, April 14th, 2017, so about five days after her murder, they sat down to question him. So can you guess what he told them? What? That they had consensual sex. Oh, of course. As they investigated further, they found the accusations and prior arrests from the other cities in Texas that he had obviously been released from. And at this point, they knew that they were the ones that would have to put him away. So they knew they needed to have a solid case against him. So they needed some time to put together their ironclad case. So in the meantime, he was released after questioning. That same day, Friday, April 14th, 2017, just hours after he left the police station after being questioned about Molly's death, Reggie encountered Megan Getram. Megan was last seen heading onto a nearby trail for a hike. Once he came upon her, he wasted no time in sexually assaulting her and killing her as well. She was 36 years old. These rapes and murders were preventable if only someone simply believed them and acted. Figgy was pissed off when he left the police station? That's real quick, man. It's very quick. Regardless, doesn't fucking matter. The point is these women did not have to die. Finally, he has been taken off the streets. He was in a plea deal to avoid the death penalty. He did confess to the rapes and murders. The detective who spoke with Melissa before and was a complete asshole and didn't believe her did apologize to her after the fact, and he electively does not work sex crimes anymore. So why? That was my big question about this whole thing, and that is why I wanted to talk about this so badly. Why do people refuse to act, or why are they so slow to act, or why are they the ones that scramble once something happens and then try to make things better and then things have to be put into place after the fact. You know, I had a really hard time finding answers to that. I was searching through so much information and the closest answers that I could get, and this book is by Michelle Walker and it's called The Gray Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore. Never heard of The Gray Rhino before and I thought maybe that was like a term that everybody knew, but it is not. It's something that she's coined. The gray rhino is a metaphor for the threats that we can see and acknowledge yet do nothing about. It's the two-ton thing that should be hard to ignore, but from which we look away, even though it's in our interest to get away before it charges. It may be pawing the ground, snorting, and getting ready to charge at you, or it may be still a ways up the road when you still have time to manage things before they become urgent. So she describes it in there's different stages. The first is denial. I feel like that's like the first stage for everything, right? <laughs> and it's denial, insistence that there is no threat. So your first thing is like, come on, no, you know, that's not real. Is it because you're believing in the good of people or is it just because that's just where you go? For me personally, I think it's that I don't want to believe that somebody would do right. X, Y, Z. Yeah. The second stage is muddling. It's the acknowledgement of the risk, but you come up with a litany of reasons to not do anything about it. Hmm. The next is diagnosis, which is a switch to the active planning stage and analyzing what it takes to solve the problem and getting your ducks in a row. Next is panic. Frenzied anxiety of an imminent crisis, the time when we're most likely to act, but also most likely to make the wrong decision, absent a strong action plan. 
Then we have action, where we take steps, often led by positive mavericks to avert the problem, inspiring others to join in the action, tracking the results, and adjusting as needed. So that's like when we get to the good part, but we have to get through all those other stages first. So I was like, that's all fine and great, but still, why? Why? Why does a person who sees a gray rhino charging at them prefer to ignore it? So her reason is, humans are vulnerable to many cognitive biases that get in the way of us acting. She says, we are prone to denial because our brains are trying to protect us from information that is overwhelming and allows us time to absorb it slowly. We are also prone to taking mental shortcuts that are supposed to make decisions easier, but often lead us in the wrong direction. So she names four key biases. The first one is optimism bias. And I think this is what you were talking about. Like you just want to believe that everybody is good or that things are good. And it says the tendency to embrace information that we want to hear and ignore bad news. Confirmation bias is the next one. And that's the failure to take seriously information that does not confirm our existing views. And that's like that cognitive dissonance that happens. You know, we've talked about that when we were talking about cults, like the cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. like when somebody says something that doesn't confirm your existing views. And so that's when you're like, wait a second, hold up. And you start to rethink yeah. things. Yeah. And it makes sense on why people wouldn't believe something then. Cause you're like, well, that doesn't align with what I believe already. Right. Or what my past experience is. Right. The next, and I think this is really big when it comes to things like this school situation and prior school situations, because it's an administration kind of working together is group think. So it's the habit of agreeing with other group members, especially with those with similar views and backgrounds. And then the last one is solution aversion, which is the resistance to acknowledge a problem because we don't like the steps that are needed to fix it. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. There's no fear in there. She doesn't list fear as one of them, no. That would have been my number one. But I would definitely say, since she is talking more about she was talking about the climate change she was talking about the financial like why crisis people don't believe these things. why um she was actually talking about covid too like how there were warning signs and things about covid and how they were ignored for me with anything the only way to make sense of anything is to like take my own experience so when i think about why i take pause before jumping in in situations like this it's because of past experiences right so like let's just think about your teens and 20s those are the times that you're like gonna go full forward with doing what's right quote unquote right so like believing things and fighting the good fight and doing those things until something comes in your way and gives you resistance this the story i have is fortunately nothing happened because of this but like i'll never forget it i mean it stuck with me i think it was year four of teaching i taught in the same town as where columbine happened and i had a student who was a little off like a little i was a little worried about him he had some issues with the other kids we taught in trailers so we were not in the school and the other students had come up to me and said, you know, said he has um, a rifle and he's going to come and kill us tomorrow because we're in trailers and no one will know. This is the same year I told this story on the pod that I was taken out by ambulance on a stretcher because of my mm -hmm. stress level at teaching. I wonder why. Same level. <laughs> I told my administration and I'll never forget the conversation. She looked at me and she goes, why are you always starting trouble? <gasps> what? Yeah. I said, well, I'm scared. That was really hard. That was really, really hard. And it, it wasn't 
very many weeks after that I had that what they would consider I guess a nervous breakdown my body literally shut down that is why when something comes to me now I remember that situation and I'm like okay what are the chances of this person believing me and then what are the chances of something bad happening if I don't do anything and I try to weigh those and it's a serious thought process where if that hadn't happened or before that I would have just like definitely just gone straight to doing something about it. Yes, but you have to sit and think about all of the different consequences that can happen. And that feeling of you're like, you're an idiot. Like, Mm -hmm. why would you say that right now? And I was not threatened. I was not raped. I was not like threatened at gunpoint. I was not any of those things. So I can't even imagine after suffering that trauma, being looked at and being like, You know you wanted it. It was Mm -hmm. consent. You just wanted to, you wanted to sleep over and he wouldn't let you. Come on. Right. Like, why do you have to like complain like this and cause trouble for poor old Reggie? Right. Even if your voice shakes, you got to do it. Exactly. I have no regrets because God for freaking bid, something happened and I hadn't said anything. Not that it would have changed anything because they didn't do anything, but at least I tried. That was a lot of our discussion personally off the air with some things that were going on with my son was that there was another child involved outside of my son where there was illegal activity happening and putting another child in danger. And I said to Amy, I was like, I don't know what to do about this. And she was like, well, if he tells me I'm mandated to report it, I let it sit. But then I thought about the fact that my son had let it sit too. And then he came to me a couple of weeks after had video proof, had seen video proof, I couldn't live with myself. And I just kept thinking if I were the other child's mother and knew that some other mother knew about what was happening and did not do anything about it or say anything, that I would be fucking livid and would never forgive that other mother. And I thought, I have a duty as a human being, as a mother as a person, as a woman, as a soul in this world to speak up. And it carries a fucking price. It does because my son is paying that price now. I'm not even paying it. Yes, I I worry and I... You had a lot of uncomfortable conversations. For sure, for sure. But I will have those uncomfortable conversations a million times over. He watched you do it. Yeah. And now he sees you as this fucking warrior. Yeah, but he he's paying the price. Of course he is, but he knows how, one, you stand up for things, and mm-hmm. two, how much you love him. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I think the point is, is that what is the difference between people who believe and don't believe, too? I think that's another question I have. I think that we are conditioned to not believe. True. That's why they make stickers like the one I have on my computer that literally says believe women because we have to. We have to make That's merch. Ri- isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> to say things that should be obvious. This whole topic gives me such pause. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. I try so hard to see the good in people and situations, but mm-hmm. this is one where it's hard. And I think the only thing that we can do and all of you out there listening is just to keep standing up and using your voice. Yes. Because I have, in most recent years, begun to believe that I am destined to repeat certain patterns until I learn the fucking lesson from them. (laughs) So I'm constantly looking for the lesson in things. And so I think that there is a subset of people that believe the same thing that we do in that sense. And those are the people that are more apt to 
believe when somebody is telling them something and to act when somebody is telling them something that needs action. And so I think that if we can implore more people to Mm -hmm. do that, Mm -hmm. then the better off we're going to be. And I think unfortunately, the more that these things happen to people and that they experience them for themselves or secondhand, then the more... The more empathy people will have. Mm -hmm. And... It's really just going to be about numbers. I guess that's the whole point of the podcast always, right? Power in numbers. You're not alone. There's other people going through these things. Yes. And this is just reason number 437 why we share stories. Just have to continue to share our own, other people's, and talk about these problems, talk about these issues to bring more light to them. And I just want to say that I am so thankful for the Me Too movement. And that had to be really fucking hard for that first person. Yeah. All that being said, just remember that to be vulnerable and share with someone something terrible that happened, whether that be abuse or bullying or sexual assault, that it takes courage and it takes bravery and to really listen and, and believe them. If you don't necessarily believe the whole thing or you don't believe it right away gather facts and evidence to help them but right in that moment the best way that you can love and take care of them is to believe them it will make a difference whether or not you take them seriously it will affect that person's life forever let's just be kind to one another and have open ears and open arms to each other we hope that you have a wonderful week warriors remember to stay wild and weird we love you this episode was brought to you by Sarah Simone and Amy Baumgartner. Theme song and other music provided by Epidemic Sound. All episodes are mixed, mastered, and produced by me, Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this one, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash unqualifiedtherapistsinc. Or share us with a friend, relative, coworker, hairstylist, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Sharing us not only helps keep the mics on, but it furthers our mission in removing the stigma. If you have a mental health journey you'd like to share, email us at unqualifiedtherapists at gmail.com or reach out to us on our website, www.unqualifiedtherapists.com. Until next time, hold on, warrior. We're gonna make it. We are-